Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Right. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Jerry Gilmer. It's June 22nd, 2022. We're at Jerry's home in McMinnville. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jerry. Uh, you mentioned you kind of had some background. Why don't you just start with some background about yourself? I'm a native Oregonian. Born here in 1940. I was raised in Canby. Spent 20 years in Canby. 20 years in Forest Grove. 10 years in Bend. And uh, the rest of the time is here has been in McMinnville. I was a technician for the Oregon Army National Guard for 24 years. I was started out as a heavy mobile equipment mechanic, and later on I was transferred in 1966. I cross-trained into electronics, mostly radar systems and uh, that sort of thing. So that's my personal background. Um, I think that's pretty much it. That, I think I just hit the highlights here. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of you, you were in Canby, you were in Forest Grove. What, what, what took you from place to place in your in early days? Well, uh, working for the Oregon Army National Guard, uh, they had what they call organizational maintenance shops, and they positioned them all throughout Oregon, and nobody wanted Forest Grove. And I had only been on the job a year, and I put in for it, and they give it to me. And I went out to a building that they built, didn't even have an air compressor in it or any of the things that I would need to, to complete my mission there. But I spent 20 years there and a 20, 25 years in the National Guard itself. And I was not only a member, but I was a federal technician. So give me an idea of some of the types of projects you'd work on for the, for the National Guard. Maintaining their equipment, all different types of equipment, uh, from anywhere from lanterns that they use out when, they, when they're on bivouac or out of the uh, vehicles, uh, that sort of thing. Um, one side note with the National Guard, you're, you have not only the, the military mission, but you have a mission for the state. We were deployed in 1964 to Sheridan, had a tremendous flood. Uh, those types of uh, things. Uh, spent 20 years there, then, uh, 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 excuse me, 20 years in Canby on a farm. I was raised on a dairy farm. And uh, then 20 years in Forest Grove as a technician. And then uh, in 1990, excuse me, 1980, my mother lived in Bend, Oregon, or a place called Tumalo on the outskirts. And uh, she didn't drive, didn't anything, so I decided I, I, they had a, they had a uh, maintenance shop in Redmond, Oregon. So I transferred there for, for five and a half years, mm -hmm. taking care of it was a, what they call an armored outfit. It had tanks and personnel carriers and all the stuff you've seen lately on the, on the news media with your, your Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, I got out of the guard in, and uh, was two, 1985, and uh, stayed there for four years. Worked for uh, worked for Beaver Coaches in their electronics and wiring department. Then I moved down here in 1990, and, and uh, to start the wine portion of the uh, interview, <laughs> this is what how it went. <laughs> there was a priest and business manager for the Trappist Abbey. His name was Pascal Phillips. 
He was a brilliant man. My wife at that time was uh, uh, friends with him. She did uh, his secretarial work and uh, we become close friends. And one time he come by while I was in Bend and he said, what are, you, what are you up to? And I said, about ready to get let out of a job. He said, uh, I'm on my way to Idaho. But when I get back, he says, send me a resume. He said, I can, you, would you go back to the valley? And I said, sure. He said, you send me your resume. And he says, I'll find you something. Well, I didn't hear from him. That was a Thanksgiving. So I didn't hear anything from him for about a year. In a year, he called me up and he says, Jerry, yeah? How would you like to go to work for the Abbey? And I says, well, sure. Well, you come down here and you live out of your suitcase and I'll give you $500 and we'll start the 1st of January. I said, okay. And uh, I said, Pascal, can I ask you a question? He says, yeah. I said, what, the, what am I going to be doing? He says, well, uh, there's a lot of vineyards going in and a lot of wineries. And he said, uh, we have a 20,000 square foot old warehouse that we used to build church pews in. And he said, the church pew business is gone. And he said, there's going to have to have wine, place to store wine. And he says, I think, I think it would work here for us. And he said, but the, 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 the only thing that we have that won't work is the fact that I can't supply monks to run it. He says, I have to run it with a secular. All my monks are 65 years or older. And so uh, uh, we, I went down there and showed up and we started in. Now, this whole warehouse had about seven big, huge rooms, places where they used to glue church pews together, that sort of thing. And so his mental picture was uh, that I would uh, receive some wine. He wanted to ha have three major wineries is all he wanted and that he would, uh, uh, I would put that wine away, keep an inventory on it, answer the telephone, operate a lift truck, and possibly, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> that would be pretty much what his, his mental picture was. Pascal was so brilliant, he was a runaway. After the first year, we had 25 wineries seven full-time employees, three lift trucks, and a pickup delivery truck, a box truck, to go out and pick up wine and bring it in. And uh, I was not involved in any of the uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, because it is alcohol, mm -hmm. so it has to be mm -hmm. according to the federal, federal rules. Mm -hmm. So he did all of that. There was a, a, a situation with alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Now, one of the things is, is he, he got the truck, he got the lift trucks and all that stuff. When he, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to sort of jump around here a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, how do I put this? He, uh, he figured to help bring in business, he would purchase a labeling machine so you could label wine for the wineries. That way it would entice them to bring it in. They could bring it in in bond, unlabeled, mm -hmm. and wine cannot be sold on the market or can't have the tax paid till it's labeled. Mm -hmm. So he, he, uh, he bought this labeling machine and uh, come from Italy. 
and it was a, a quite a endeavor to my, my electronics background and stuff sort of kicked in there to help uh, keep the thing functioning. One of the things we found out that once that wine is labeled and stuff, if you want to sell it on the market, you just can't ship it out of the warehouse. Because of alcohol and tobacco rules, it has to be physically taken back to the winery on the winery premises where the tax can be paid. Then it comes back to the warehouse and could be distributed or distributed out of the winery. He went to Washington, D.C. and circumvented all the uh, alcohol and tobacco small sub-businesses. He went back there and he talked to him. He says, here, I'm a poor little monk out here in this monastery. And he says, I have a small business. And he says, we started. And he says, the charades that you people come up with are something else. We're spending all this fuel and all this manpower and stuff to move wine from our warehouse back to the winery mm -hmm. and then back again just to satisfy your rules. And he says, uh, I find it ridiculous. The head of the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms told him, Mr. Pascal or pa Father Pascal, he says, you go back home and write me a letter and uh, to the effect of it. So he did. He got a variance from the federal government. That variance worked really well for about 12 years. And then for some reason, we got an audit and they pulled it out from under us and said, no, you got to go back to doing it according to the rules. You know, federal bureaucracy is mm -hmm. what it was. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's, uh, that's sort of the rundown. That's how it started. And uh, I figured I could count beans and bullets. For the guard, I could sure the heck count wine bottles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you mentioned that the space had been designed originally for church pews. Yes. And so what gave the idea of turning it into wine storage? Where, where did he get that idea? I, he's just brilliant. He just probably popped into his mind. And, and he'd been talking to Susan Blosser from Sofa Blosser. Uh, he talked to uh, Roland Souls at Argyle. He went to the couple of the big ones and said, I'm going to start this. Do you think it'll work? Mm -hmm. and, and they said, well, heavens, yes. So that's that's how it sort of started. And, but again, it, it, it took off and just went wild. Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody knows here presently today, we have over a thousand vineyards and over 600 wineries in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Now, as I was building the business, uh, I finally got me a secretary to answer the phone and do the bill of ladings and stuff, but I spent a lot of time out meeting people at the wineries, reading, meeting uh, the, uh, the owners, meeting the winemakers. I was squared out into Ashland, Medford, Grants Pass, Cottage Grove, Roseburg, just touching bases. And I met some wonderful people during that time. There was uh, two classes of people in the wine industry. There's the hard-working farmer that's growing the grapes, producing wine, and all the things that go with it. Then there's the, the doctor or the attorney that has this beautiful vineyard with his floor, you know, with a deck overlooking his, his residence, and so he's the money person, and he hires the rest of the people to do it. It's pretty much that way. A little side note, <laughs> it costs $3 to make a bottle of wine. That's the label, the cap, the cork, the, the glass, and the so forth. And the, just a little side note there. 
it's, it's, that's, it's something that's come up a lot lately with all of the supply costs and shortages. It's in, and no one ever really considers the, how much it costs to make a single bottle of wine. So it's, <laughs> it's interesting to have that in the record. So I'm curious uh, for you, uh, did you have any background with wine, any knowledge of wine, any appreciation for wine before you started? I made homemade wine. So you were a winemaker. Yeah. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> and, I, and I went by the federal rules as, a, as a, a civilian or as a person that wants to make wine out here. You can go to alcohol and tobacco farms or write them a letter and you can make up to 300 gallons for personal use. You can't sell it, you can't do anything, but you can invite your friends in and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I made some berry wines. I made a black cap that was, uh, I must have, uh, uh, bottled it too soon because it was effervescent like like champagne and it felt just like you ever had, had pop, uh, pop rocks it's just like you grabbed a handful of uh, black caps and popped them in your mouth they were just wonderful very low in alcohol but it was sure good in flavor that's my background in wine making <laughs> So what did you have to learn? What were the biggest lessons as uh, for, for wine specifically or just, just running a business of that sort in the, in the kind of early years? Uh, coming up with an a, a inventory system was one of the biggest things because you have to keep track down to the bottle. And then you have to turn in reports of how much gallonage that comes into the warehouse. Uh, that was one of the big hurdles was uh, uh, keeping track of it. I got involved in building a custom-built Microsoft uh, inventory warehouse system. And when, uh, one thing I learned <clears throat> with c computers, when you build a program, you're never done with it. You're continuously upgrading it. We used that for about 10 years, and it was just, it just become a, a, a not only costly but a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So we bought a CAN program out of California, out of Napa Valley, that not only take care of warehousing, but it took care of all the wineries that had to do their chemical testing and all that stuff. It was a whole huge program. It was a little bit of a learning <laughs> curve to, to learn how to operate it, but that was one of the big things. The other thing was, uh, of course, when you when you have a warehouse, you usually have to load loading docks. You have to have a, a service set up so people. The wineries are small; they'll come up in their car and pick up ten <laughs> cases. So you have to have that kind of facility where you and people to, to load them and unload them and help them. Uh, the other thing that I never thought about that I got involved in is transportation. The hub comes out of California that goes all over throughout the United States. It's Napa Valley. There's tremendous wine warehouses down there. Well, we travel from here. We take the wine to California, and from there it goes out to the distributors. Um, <clears throat> so I had to put trucking in place. I didn't want to buy my own trucks. I didn't want to give drivers and mess with that sort of thing. So I, I went on the hunt, and I found a man up in... Seattle, Washington, or excuse me, Tacoma, mm -hmm. Ray's Gutner was his name, and he had a, a five trucks, 18 wheelers with refrigeration, and it was called Burgundy Express. <laughs> he would pick up loads in, in Seattle. He picked up loads in Walla Walla, because Walla Walla was starting to develop up in the wine industry there. He would come by our doors, pick up the loads that we have. We would have up to 20 or 30 different small 
from anywhere from 20 cases to a distributor in St. Louis mm -hmm. to somebody in New York. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he would haul those to California and drop those at various warehouses where the distributors want them dropped so they could, the trucking could go from there, refrigerated, mm -hmm. to wherever this end of, end of uh, destination. That worked out really well, and I had his use of his facilities for quite a long time. It was, it was pretty nice. What was your impression of the, well, we'll talk about, it was, we'll start bigger, I guess. What was your impression of the industry that you were, that you were working with? What was your impression of the people in Oregon wine at that point and, and of sort of the wine quality and demand at that point? Uh, my impression was it was a growing industry. When I started, there was only like uh, oh, 20 or 25 wineries, uh, and uh, just in the first year, it, it leaped to 100. Mm -hmm. But my my impression was the uh, I found that they were very friendly. Oregon wineries worked among themselves back and forth. There was no uh, us or them. Later on, there was a couple of huge uh, purchases of wineries. One down to called King Estates. Mm -hmm. uh, they tried to buy all the Pinot Gris in the country and that sort of, the, the, the rumors started rattling through the industry, but people, they would work with each other. I mean, the Oregon wineries here, if this person needed glass or this person needed certain things or help, they, would, they were very, very cordial and very, mm -hmm. of course there was an international Pinot Noir celebration here that Susan Blosser started here at Plinfield. Mm -hmm. There was uh, lots of seminars that I attended, which a lot of the wineries were there, went there, and you'd be meet people that way. But my, my overall impression was it was just a family. Mm -hmm. It was a family business throughout the whole state of Oregon. And they had even reached over into, into, into uh, Washington State, too. Mm -hmm. so. So obviously your, your part of the industry is not something that's terribly exciting or thrilling for people to think about. It's kind of a necessary thing, but it's not something people are going to think about as they're getting into the business necessarily. So what was their, were they prepared for sort of the need you were filling? Were they ready for? That came as a secondary. Yeah. Uh, they, as, they, as they go out, they were marketing. Now, they, <laughs> excuse me, a lot of the wineries would actually send a, a salesperson that was working for them out to these different distributors. And, and Oregon Wines, and, and I think you could really contribute to Susan Blosser for that. Uh, she was great in uh, promoting Oregon Wines. And Oregon Wines are right up there with French wines. The temperature, the climate, everything is pretty much parallel. And uh, so it, uh, some of the wines that these smaller winers make were just fantastic mm -hmm. as far as quality and uh, you know, of course, there was always some that uh, you always think there might be a shakeout because it started to build so many of them. But, but uh, that anyway, that's pretty much in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, the wineries themselves were, would do the distributing or get contacted by distributors, and then they say, "Well, how do we get it there?" Because the wine, some of the distributors wanted the wineries to pay for all the shipping up to that point, and of course, added on to the bottle of wine, and. Uh, so that's how it worked. And of course then they, they found out we were, there's this little Trappist monastery out here. And there was a, a mystique about the, being a, a Trappist Abbey with 87 monks to start with, 
Uh, there was a lot of parts of the business that I can cover a little later as far as uh, that made things work pretty smooth. But, mm -hmm. uh, they would see that we could can, we could uh, uh, provide the services that they needed, and we grew as it goes. You know, something would crop up, then I would address the issue and go for it. Mm -hmm. oh, try to, to really back the industry. So because uh, you know we are a service industry, and if you don't do good service, they don't do business with you. You mentioned the kind of the sudden success that you were was perhaps unexpected. Uh, what were the what were the kind of first biggest adjustments you had to make as as the business was taking off so quickly? The shipping to California with Burgundy Express, the inventory system that I had to come mm -hmm. up with because I had to to of course uh, uh, bend to certain federal rules. That was a big one. Mm -hmm. And then there's temperature control issues in any kind of warehouse. And this old church pew factory was not insulated. The monks uh, had it insulated. We installed air conditioning. We try to keep wine pretty much at 50 degrees or thereabouts. It's more better to keep it steady temperature than it is the actual temperature cell. You could keep it at 60, it's fine. So, but that, those were the issues. Now, in the growth, uh, after the first year and a half, uh, we were just bulging. We had 150,000 cases for about 25 wineries. I went to Pascal and I said, Pascal, if you want to stay in the business or grow it, we need another building. So I sat on the Monastery uh, Financial Council. I had to give presentations. So I went in and made a presentation. Pascal says, you figure out what you need. I figured out what I need for square footage, and I tripled it. I filled that in four years. <laughs> Went over 100 and some wineries in, and 275,000 cases. They built it into the mountainside on the backside of the present warehouse that's there, and I designed a system where uh, it was temperature controlled with big vents that at night when it gets down to 50 or 45 degrees, the vents would open up, sweep all the heat out that's in the building trap during the day. When in the morning, when it gets up to about 60, those vents would automatically close. So we'd had a natural cooling system. That was a, that was a big hurdle, mm -hmm. keeping track of it, uh, mm -hmm. making sure that the customer's wine is kept where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Meantime, the labeling machine was making just running day and night. I had to buy a set, get a second crew to run that. Did you add more services beyond labeling? No, not really. Uh, I didn't want to get involved with uh, bottling there. Now that's a big thing in California. They have these big, huge trucks that go out with tanks, fill, put the wine in the tanks, and take them to a stationary. Uh, Ted, our uh, Castiles, uh, which was Bethel Heights Winery, their son. John. Yeah. He, uh, he's he got one now right over here. Mm -hmm. And he also had a mobile bottling. There was a lot of mobile bottling units that mm -hmm. pull into a winery and they hook up to it. And, uh, you know, you, when there's transferring wine from vats into into hoses, through hoses into labeling and all that stuff, I you, you can keep going, but you got to sort of 
say, okay, I'm going to, I'm good at what I'm doing. Let's not, if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if it's not broke, don't fix it. <clears throat> what about staffing? Obviously you were, you were expecting, you were hired and probably kind of expected to be the person. So yeah. all of a sudden you have a staff. Tell me about finding people to, to run. Um, uh, the biggest, uh, first issue that I needed was uh, an office person to, 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 to operate this uh, ongoing built inventory system on computer. We could feed the information into it. I hired a, a gal named Lana. She had worked in a title trust company in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. When I went out for put, I put a, advertised the interview for a person to do that. Evergreen Helicopters over here just had finished a project and they uh, let go about a hundred and some employees. Mm -hmm. I was bombarded with sixty resumes for one position. I whittled it down to six well-qualified people. And one of them was even a supply officer in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so, but anyway, Lana was, uh, I liked her personality. I liked her smile. She was great with working with, uh, with people. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was sort of the bedrock of, of, of the focal point in the office. Mm -hmm. Then I needed to get uh, the second person personnel I needed was somebody to, to actually physically put the wine away, feed the information to Lana so they could put it into the computer. Of course, there's all kinds of federal paperwork and stuff that backs that up. So I hired a sort of a unique name for a monastery, Chuck Sinner. <laughs> Chuck is now the manager of the Abbey Wine Warehouse. From my military background, one thing you always do, and I've always believed in this, whenever you're running any kind of a position, you want to train all your people around you so if you go down and you're not available anymore, the business can go on and somebody can step in your shoes and keep the customers happy. Chuck did a great job. I trained him. Uh, he knew everything about the place, air conditioning, the, the trucking, mm -hmm. how to help load the trucks. Drivers will pretty much tell you how to load their trucks. They, they know where it's got to go, their first drop, second, third, and fourth. Mm -hmm. so. But anyway, Chuck uh, did a great job, just mm -hmm. a fantastic job. They've had some other managers in there uh, it, before him, but uh, they finally realized that he had a lot of knowledge, and so they put him into the position. And then we had to come up with a uh, compliance officer position. When you move wine, uh, there are certain states that you cannot ship wine into unless it goes to a distributor first and that sort of thing. Uh, I'll give you a prime example of what can happen. Doug Tunnell from Brickhouse Vineyards. Uh, sent a shipment of wine to West Virginia. West Virginia is a reciprocal state. You can send it there. But it went to Virginia to a distribution center at FedEx, or I think it was UPS. They confiscated it because that part of Virginia was a non-compliance. And you're probably talking $1,200 worth of wine that he never got back. Mm -hmm. He, we got on the phone and talked to him, where's my wine? They would get run off to somebody else. Nobody ever knew what happened. He said they must have had some good dinners back there. 
<laughs> but that's one of the major things. We had to have a compliance officer mm -hmm. that could track what states we could send to and which one we couldn't. Mm -hmm. So it was a, you know, it's a progress. That you, you deal with the problems as they come along and then you say, oh, how am I going to permanently fix this? Mm -hmm. Well, that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. You got to confiscate the good stuff, right? If you're yeah. on, if you're on the that's, other end of it, that's right. <laughs> it's all good, but some just a little bit better than others. <laughs> so, was uh, you mentioned uh, when the first expansion? You you you're looking at a new building. You, you you take what you need. You triple it in size. You fill it up. Was there a was there a cap in mind? Was there a, an ideal size or a, or a size we can't go beyond in mind? Or was it just kind of growing until it stopped? It grew until it stopped. Uh, later on, I could have expanded more. The monastery only had 87 monks, and they were getting down to a point that there <clears throat> was only like 42 left. And, uh, you know, they're self-sustaining. Everybody thinks the church is backing them. They had their own book bindery. Mm -hmm. They had their own fruitcake, date nut cake bakery, mm -hmm. which they market at Christmas time. They have, when they moved up, when the monks moved up from Pecos, New Mexico, uh, they bought this farm out there. That's 1,500 acres, and it was a logged off piece of nothing. So the monks decided they would plant 10 acres of fir trees each year. It takes 60 years to grow a tree, and in 50 to 60 years they could harvest 10 acres of it off, replant, and it would be self-sustaining in the long run. And so uh, that's how that so they didn't really want to go beyond what what we had built, mm -hmm. and it was producing some income for them. Mm -hmm. And of course, we we were taxed. We have to pay a tax on on that portion, just like they have to pay a tax on their book bindery and their and their fruitcake business. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one of the stories was uh, Brother Clarence was uh, one of the monks that run the uh, forestry. They, he got to such an age he couldn't run up and down the hills with a chainsaw anymore. He was 94. <laughs> and so they brought in a professional forester. And uh, I was sitting on the financial meeting with that. And they were saying, this forester turns to Brother Clarence. He says, where are your records of all the forestry that you've planted? And Brother Clarence made the gesture. There was no records. He had it all here. It's crazy. <laughs> it is. But they did not want to expand any more than that. Sure. So then uh, John Niemeyer and Jeff come by to visit me, and I give them a complete tour of the place. And my attitude was, you know, they're not going to build any more. We'll take care of what we got. They're going to need a winery. So they, John has always dealt with a lot of warehouses in Portland area. He bought the Mrs. Smith Pie Factory over here. And I can't remember what the square footage of that was, but that took off, and they filled that in no time. They have a couple hundred wineries in there now. They have a annex warehouse in Tualatin that's part of that. It's all called Oregon Wine Services. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, Jeff went into his own wine with an eminent domain, which is a beautiful location. And uh, it, there's been other wine warehouses. There was one in Salem called Northwest Distribution and Storage. And then there's another one now in Tualatin, and I, I don't remember the name of it. But, so it's slowly, warehouses from California moved up from Napa, figuring that they'd get a piece of the action. Mm -hmm. But Oregon Wine Services and the Abbey is pretty well. Mm -hmm. One of the things the wineries thought about the Abbey is they, they got this thought that we store our wine there, it's a nice, quiet place. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> my wine's in a quiet place. <laughs> Okay. Sacred and contemplative yeah. space, yeah. yeah. Uh, on that note, were there any other kind of unique challenges to uh, to having the monastery as the overarching kind of uh, business under which this was running? Just the mystique of it. <laughs> it's a monastery and there's monks. and uh, There was little side businesses that we did uh, to help, uh, I guess you'd say, enhance the business. Um, in warehousing, one of your biggest things is pallets to put wine on. Pallets are about used used ones or rebuilt ones are about eight bucks a piece. New ones are twenty. And uh, Father Pasco give me one monk in the morning for four hours to help Chuck put wine away. In the afternoon, they have novices that come in to this monastery. It takes those novices seven years to become a monk, to become married to the Trappist Abbey. So they'd send these up to me. Well, I buy. Uh, lumber from local lumber boat, and they had our pallet repair. It was free labor. They repaired our pallets, put them back out, and so we were, that was our way of recycling, one of our ways of recycling. <laughs> one of the other things I did develop that, uh, that uh, cropped up over the period of time, and it worked with a foam company over in, in Wilsonville, I helped design um, <clears throat> wine shipping containers. We started with uh, uh, with foam, but then later on, with some of the containers went totally cardboard because of uh, environmental reasons. But uh, we we designed one that could be used as shipped as a three pack, six pack, twelve uh, or twelve pack, and so. Uh, winery started purchasing a lot of those from us, and then of course later on. Winers found out where we were having them made. They just get them directly, which is fine. You know, that's <laughs> just that just happens in business. Sure. You you talked earlier about kind of how the the business grew basically by you you'd find a challenge, you'd find something that needed to be done, and then figure out how to do it. Yes. Were there were there people in the industry asking things of you that either you did did eventually add to the business or decided not to add? There was one uh, uh, winery that wanted me to completely uh, revamp my labeling machine just for his label. And I, uh, being an electronics and a repair person, I, I designed it in such a way I could do that. Uh, I didn't like to because it took a lot of mechanical mm -hmm. manipulating. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the things that uh, there was always people having requests of some sort, that, mm -hmm. and I just tell them that you know I'd have to tell them no, I, I don't think we can do that mm -hmm. at this time, but I'll look into it, and I would, I'd look into it and see if it was feasible, mm -hmm. and you know you can become just keep going on with no end to it. Mm -hmm. so. So obviously you you were there as the as the industry was exploding in growth. Mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, obviously more more wineries and more wines all the time. What was your impression of the industry during that time of growth? What, what were there? What were the changes to it? And what were the kind of what 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 were the kind of the biggest like sort of standout moments for you? I think the biggest thing was. They were expanding quite largely, and I, of course that's like a, dropping in the top of a funnel. I was at the bottom of that, dealing with uh, a tremendous amount of influx of, of uh, inventory. That was one of the biggest challenges. And of course, uh, then there's, the, there's uh, in winery business, in the wineries they keep what they call library wines. Mm -hmm. They'll get done with a particular vintage or a particular wine, 
and they'll keep six to eight cases of that in a library somewhere. We've become some of the, had to put in special racking and some things to be able to accommodate. Uh, the, the, the drawback to that is a winery will call you up a year later and they'll say, by the way, I need a 1.5 liter for a wedding coming up. And uh, I know it's in my library. Well, we'd have to move uh, 35 pallets to get to that library one. Well, I put in racking and made it a little easier. Those are the kind of challenges. Mm -hmm. But uh, they wanted access to it. It would. I, I, I had to come to a point that I'd tell them, you have to give me four hours notice at least because we're doing our day-to-day -day business and plus this is an addition to it if that answers your question what about your impressions of the people who came into the industry and of the and of the the sort of the growth of the wines themselves wonderful 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 people uh just uh give you an example i went on a trip down to uh south of Grants Pass, and there was a little winery there, and I went and talked to the man. He come out of the fields. He was a, pretty much a one-man show, and I introduced myself and uh, talked with him, and he said, you know, you're all the way here from, from the monastery up in McMinnville area. He says, can my wife and I fix you lunch? So we sat down and had lunch and had wine with him, and, uh, uh, you know, they're so friendly. They were just receptive to, to anything, of course, it was pretty nice, you know, but the overall, all the winers are pretty good. Once in a while with any kind of business, you're going to have a stinker or two, and uh, just it's just what it is, it just happens, but most of, mostly, I'm going to say that 99.5% were excellent, <laughs> excellent to work with, and, and uh, you get, like, Doug Tunnell, for instance, from Brickhouse, he come up with a different system. He would put it, he would bottle his wine unlabeled and put it in baskets. He would bring it in, and then he was uh, would order his packaging that he wanted to put it in. As we were labeling it on the labeling line, we used the packaging, so it was a only handle at once situation. Mm -hmm. Smart thinking on his part, and we accommodated that. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. all those kind of little things, mm -hmm. and and they appreciate it. to this day he. He wouldn't go anywhere else, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. And they have, a lot of them have become personal friends. I, I bailed out of the wine industry in 2004. I retired. Uh, <clears throat> and I was sitting at home. You know, I, I like to fish. I fished off the Oregon coast for, since 1965. Fished for halibut and one thing or another. And, and I did a little hunting. You know, I've been living in Oregon all my life. You know, mm -hmm. it's here. And anyway... Uh, and that, I almost lost my train of thought here. Uh, in that period of time, uh, oh gosh, it'll come to me. It fleeted out. So. Well, you're talking about you retired in 2004. Yeah, 2004 I, I retired, and uh, uh, they had a transportation manager at Oregon Wine Services. They called Oregon Wine Transport is what they call that division. And there was a man named Pat Devine. Uh, that they, a uh, lumber company went under, and he'd been a, mark, uh, a transportation dispatcher. And so he called me up, and I, I initially, while I was still on the job, I, he went on a trip with me to make a delivery to Seattle, and I sort of, with that on that trip, I could clue him in on what was going on and, and how the wineries work and where contacts and so forth. And he called me up, and he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, 
really not too much. I'm doing some woodworking at home. I'm building some things and I'm getting ready to go fishing. And How'd you like to go to work for Oregon Wine, sir? Oregon Wine Transport. And I said, well, sure. What do you, what do you got going? Well, I've got the big trucks and the big drivers, but he says, uh, I need somebody to run a sprinter van and go out and pick up this four cases here, ten here, or whatever, so I'm not moving a big truck and paying huge fuel uh, for that. So he put me to work. And I've been there now, I think, three years, three or four years, and uh, it's filled in pretty well. Prior to quitting, I did get involved in uh, through John Niemeyer uh, owned, uh, what is that, uh, winery right in Dundee, Northwest Wine Northwest Company? Wine. Yeah. Northwest Wine Company, or Laurent mm -hmm. owns it. Uh, they had some grocery stores that they top in like Four Seasons that was in Seattle area and some of the surrounding Tacoma, all those outlying areas. And so they wanted somebody to take a box truck up there, so I got involved in that. And that was a carry a log book, it was just like a regular driver. And that was that was a little bit of a challenge. But because uh, you, you have to leave here at 3 in the morning, make your first drop at Tacoma at 7 o'clock, and there's always a surround back with other trucks lined up to unload their produce for the day or whatever they're delivering. So that was quite a challenge. I didn't have any problem operating the equipment because I operated some of the some of the most large equipment you could ever think of. I haul tanks and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, case of pallets of wine, you just got to know how to how to strap them down so nothing gets moved. But I did get involved with that in a while. And to this day, I don't know how much longer I'll drive for him. I'm 82, and uh, I'm still pretty good shape. So. Anyway. As long as you feel like it, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you talked earlier about one of the jobs you had, one of the parts of your job was to go out and meet, said, meet people, like you said, go, going around, meeting mm -hmm. people. Um, as the industry grew, did you find that hard to keep up with where people were and the new projects that were starting? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it become, because there was a lot of new people coming into the system, the family of Oregon wineries started getting additions out here, and some of those people didn't understand that the people that had been there for years and years and years were working with each other. And so going out, you know, cold turkey and meeting some of these people, and it's like, who are you, you know? Uh, it made it a little difficult, but once you, once you, once they start talking a little bit to the other wineries and they knew our reputation at the Abbey, it was not a problem. I'm from the Abbey, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, you could invite them out for a, for a, a tour. Mm -hmm. We had an open house each fall. Uh, usually had some coffee and monastery was good about bringing a little uh, music and, and we'd have uh, tea and coffee for them and give them tours and stuff just to, to be part of the industry. Mm -hmm. So um, are there notable changes that you've seen in Oregon wine in your years? Yes. What are the biggest ones? Uh, going to stationary bottling with the big tank trucks. Uh, that's one of the major things, you know, all of, everybody did everything themselves in their own little winery. And, you know, ordering uh, just bottle glass, for instance, uh, that's, a, that's a major thing. Uh, 
For a while there was uh, some glass that came in from Mexico and uh, it was good glass, but in the train getting here, they didn't put any dividers between it and the glass would rub so it had dust. Then we had some Chinese uh, glass came in from China and it was so thin that on a labeling line when you clamped it with a labeling machine, the whole side of a bottle would bust out. Well, it takes time to clean that up and plus the labels get stained and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the main, mm -hmm. but uh, mainly the, the going to the like they do in California, the big boys, <laughs> like Kendall Jackson and all those people that, that produce, you know, 150,000 cases of one wine, you know, so, yeah. The, uh, the startup of Walla Walla and Columbia Valley up the river, mm -hmm. you know, through the gorge, yeah, the gorge, you know, Dallas, you know, there's a lot of wines there that are like Merlots and Cabernets and stuff. They, they, they love that heat. Mm -hmm. And so that's produced some really nice, nice wines. Here where it's cooler, the Pinot Noir is a big thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's some Syrahs and all that other types of wine. Mm -hmm. I had to learn all that stuff too. <laughs> I was curious about that. How did you How did you kind of find yourself learning about wine? Uh, primarily just talking to the people in tasting rooms and, and mm -hmm. uh, meeting them. And, mm -hmm. and well, why don't you take a bottle of this home and see what you're... <laughs> what your wife thinks about it, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, you, I was pretty close to what they call the cellar rats. The cellar rats are the ones that work for the, uh, for the winemaker, and you get to know them, and, and they'll give you all kinds of, well, they're in a, a sort of an enclosed uh, operation, you know, mm -hmm. and they're just happy to give you information. Mm -hmm. you know, there's unfiltered wine, there's filtered, that goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. and, so you, you mentioned you're still you're still involved in the industry. You're still driving still driving some wine around. Oh yeah, go pick it up. What's what? what go, go ahead. Uh, Give you an example. Uh, Winery starting out sometimes will only get uh, there's a, a distributor back east called Small Lots. They might only order six cases. Mm -hmm. So I got to get that six cases plus maybe this winery over here has got ten cases for Small Lots. So you got to put all that together. So you go pick it up with a, and take it over to the warehouse and unload it and. And the boys put it together there, and then of course it's got to be marked with a, well, with a, the PO number or anything. You try to do anything in the world that nothing gets lost. And when you're talking about a truck with oh 45 different kinds of uh, orders on it, and they're stacked and so forth, it, you know, and they know, the drivers know where to drop it and stuff. But then it's always handling, being handled. And you just hold, keep your fingers crossed. But you do your part to start with. Yeah. So what does the, if, what's your impression of the Oregon wine industry right now and, and what, do you, what do you kind of see maybe coming next for it? Growth to some degree, uh, especially, I keep, up to, I keep up on pretty much the social media and things that are going on. There's a tremendous problem going on in France right now with, with drought and uh, England's coming forward with their wines and we'll be okay here for a while as the climate uh, Warms, I would expect more Merlots, more Cabs, more Syrahs, more uh, wines, that, grapes that can grow, that can stand the heat. Mm -hmm. And Pinot Noir likes to be cool, so I don't know, that might be a change eventually. There'll always be somebody that be raising it close to the coast where it's cool. Mm -hmm. so. <coughs> 
some of the marketing in this is a deal too. So there was a man, uh, Dick Cutler, uh, Flying Dutchman Winery, uh, down by uh, Otter Rock. Uh -huh. And Dick and I, we stored for him, and he bottled down there. He was going to build a winery down there, but he has a little tiny winery. And his wine was, um, how did he say that? It was ocean. I'm not going to get this quite right. It was, it was ocean breeze cured, or something like that. <laughs> Because of the coolness, but they, everybody's got a little gimmick, mm -hmm. you know, of some sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what about what comes next for you? You mentioned you're gonna you're driving uh, for at least a little bit longer. What yeah. what else are you looking ahead to? Oh, actually, uh, I don't know. Uh, just you know, as you get older, there's always some kind of uh, struggles that come into your health-wise and your system. You know, you know. So uh, I haven't got anything major, but that might become a point that maybe you start getting glycoma or something and you mm -hmm. can't drive anymore. Mm -hmm. I'll probably just do my woodworking here mm -hmm. and, and just, I, I've got a boat in the shop that I'm working on right now. It'll be good for lake fishing and crabbing and that sort of thing. Uh, I run a 22-foot boat off the Oregon coast. Like I say, for since 1965, I had several different ones. And that's always been a hobby, fishing. Mm -hmm. Uh, just give you a little side note on that one. I was uh, well, my fishing partner moved up to a place called Birkenfeld. It's up in the up in the mountains above Vernonia. Okay. And so he doesn't come down any much anymore to fish with me. So we were fishing off the Oregon coast three years ago, just before the pandemic, and we were running electric downriggers to try to pick up a chinook. Chinook are always on the bottom. Silvers are on the top feeding. Coho. And I hooked a big fish, and he says, man, you got a big one on. Well, it ended up being a 41-pound halibut. <laughs> so I love the surprises in the ocean. <laughs> a pilot whale that comes up and looks at you. All that kind of stuff. So I'm, I, maybe I'll experience that. I can always charter out. And the biggest hoot is going tuna fishing. Why is that? You're trolling along at 15 miles an hour, and they go by you doing about 40. And when they hook onto that line, you don't put your thumb on that reel <laughs> you'll burn yourself <laughs> fast fish <laughs> yeah that's just personal stuff that's yeah. been a lot of fun over the years but I've built grandfather clocks I haven't built any pianos or anything but I do cabinetry work when I worked at Beaver Coaches I started out doing electronics and I ended up in their cabinet division which was wonderful because I could learn gluing projects techniques and all kinds of neat stuff so yeah handy skills to have oh yeah yeah look good on my resume <laughs> <laughs> yesterday i uh we we acquired a house over in woodburn and i uh the people had a the heater removed out of it and one come up for sale out here of a house they're going to destroy and i went out and removed the the heater out of it myself and uh the guy asked me, he says, he only sold it to me for a hundred bucks. He just had a new motor put in it and stuff. And <laughs> he says, what are you going to do? I said, well, I tell you, I, it's going to look good on my resume. Now I'm uh, a furnace remover and installer. <laughs> so you always get, I've always been one that just comes up with all kinds of stuff to get involved with. <laughs> you got to fill the sheet, right? That's, That's right. right. That's you, right. You, you mentioned the pandemic, and I know that you're not directly involved anymore, but I'm curious about did you have any perception of 
uh, how that might how that affected sort of the wine storage and distribution oh. business? Oh yeah, it did. It, it uh, affected it in, uh, in marketing. It, it affected a lot of ways because of, of the trucking. Mm -hmm. And of course now, because of the uh, economy that's doing all this thing, that's affecting it now. Mm -hmm. But before, with the, with the pandemic, yes, yeah. yeah, we we had a lot of wine stored there for a while. I mean, when you're talking about just one little monk, my, uh, monastery out here that's got 350, 400,000 cases, and then you take somebody like uh, Oregon Wine Services, Chef Meter's old business, you know, they're probably looking at. Oh gosh, twelve thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand for you know hundred wineries. Keeping track of all that and stuff. Some of that slowed down, wasn't moving quite as quick. And I imagine that there's a trickle down now. It's starting to open up again. There's mm -hmm. still we still ship some. Always we're shipping some. Mm -hmm. I've always found it didn't matter whether there are economies one way or another. People like alcohol. They'll always that's a nice crutch. For some people, <laughs> always find a way to get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you, obviously, you also brought up the, the supply chain and the, the last couple of years of, of that. So, ha what are the effects you've seen of that on on those businesses? Are are, are people struggling to get wines where they need to get them in the time you know, they need to get them? Not near as much anymore okay. because you know, with all the big warehouses here and the trucking that's in place, and and uh, you get a good transportation manager like uh, Pat Devine. Uh, he's he's just uh, unlimited the things he can do and help people out. Mm -hmm. He's the he's the nuts and bolts guy that a winery calls. Out, hey, I got a distributor back in Sussex. Can you get my wine there? He wants me to make the arrangements to get it there. Pat will figure it out. He's mm -hmm. got a, he's been doing it for so long that he just so it's a great asset uh, uh, is to fill in those those gaps that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I deal with a lot of small uh, distributors in Portland too with the Sprinter van. They'll mm -hmm. they'll get wine that comes in from uh, from South America, Africa, all over. It comes in there, and I'll have to go pick up. They want a hundred cases moved to California, so I'll have to go pick it up with a Sprinter van and put it into warehouse, and, and we go through all the little bill of ladies and all the stuff that to, to move it. Mm -hmm. One thing about a bill of lading, that's a, a legal document to move one item to another place legally. And you got to have the gallonage on it, and all kinds of little stipulations. Good, good transportation guy is hard to beat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the things you never thought you'd have to know, that's, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> well, that's all the questions I have for you, Jerry. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? No, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, uh, I, I hope that you, I, there's a few people that come to my mind that you might want to treat if you haven't already seeked them out. A retired winemaker and a wonderful person is, uh, is uh, Redford. Myron? Myron Redford. Oh, yeah. Uh, we go back together. Uh, Michael and David Adelsheim, fantastic people. They were one of the first people that stored with us at the Abbey. In fact, they even set up in the corner somewhere and done their own labeling there, too. So, some wonderful people. And uh, they've been in the industry for years. And, and they just stand out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just top notch. Mm -hmm. Yam Hill Valley Vineyards out here is another one. Mm -hmm. uh, Dennis and Elaine. I guess the biggest thing that I really, 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 uh, uh, I really stands out is the fact of how many Latinos and vineyard workers and all the people that 
gathering income from the wine industry. And uh, Adelsheim and Susan Bosser and those little people set up uh, medical systems for them, so they had some kind of medical support, which is a wonderful thing, you know. So there's a big picture here that of a lot of things that went on, but they could not harvest these grapes or do the things they do if they didn't have that uh, Hispanic, or I'd rather use the word Latino. My, my partner's not only Latino, she's uh, Thule Indian and also French. Her last name's Lamont. Mm -hmm. so, so she's made me aware of, of uh, you know, and I've met a lot of really neat people from Mexico that's mm -hmm. been here for years. Mm -hmm and they just couldn't function without them. Mm -hmm. Good crews that go out. You know, they're out there in January, February, trimming the grapes, you know, and then they come on and then they trim them, get them ready for one, and then pick them later. You know, that's that's all gotta be done right, mm -hmm. you know? And it gotta be handled right. So that that's one of the biggest standout of all of the employees that they employ in this industry. And now, with all the UC Davis and Linfield, and I've been to the annex down there, right out uh, west of Salem a little bit. Mm -hmm. Chemeketa? Uh, yeah, Chemeketa. You know, it's all wonderful things to me, because it's, it's all part of the growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wine will be around a long time. It's only been around for 3,000 years. <laughs> Got a long ways to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even the monks like their wine. That's where it all came from. It all came from the monks. That's right. So it's, That's it's, right. it's perfectly fitting. I used to get uh, their, uh, what do they call it when they do communion? Mm -hmm. I used to get uh, their wine in, ship their wine from California up here, and they buy it by the gallon jug. And uh, I'd get a shipment in for them, and I store, I store that in the warehouse for them. And so, you know, it's, it's there. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jerry. We appreciate your time and your hospitality today, sharing all your stories oh, with you us. Oh, you didn't get any cooking. We gotta, <laughs> keep, we gotta. We'll, we'll go there next. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll let you off the hook. You're, you're more than welcome. And uh, if there's anything that later on, I can probably send you an email. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of people I know in the industry that I haven't mentioned today that are just wonderful people. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't already contacted them, they'll get you a lot of history. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much. You bet. You're more than welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.